0: To unbelievers, Charles Spurgeon once said, you are hanging over the mouth of hell by a single thread and that thread is breaking. Only a gasp for breath, only a stopping of the heart for a single moment and you will be in an eternal world without God, without hope, without forgiveness. Oh, can you face it? Being a kid growing up in a home with parents who love you unequivocally means being warned at times by your parents about the dangers that exist in this world, right? And generally speaking, the greater the danger, the greater the warning. To the point that at times a parent's warning to a child, of course, can be urgent, even harsh, and for good reason, right? If your child is about to stick their hand on a red hot burner on the stove, you're not going to calmly explain to little Johnny. Now, Johnny, don't you think it would be best to consider your actions first? The possible ramifications before you lay your hands on that burner? No, of course not. You're going to warn little Johnny with a sense of urgency and intensity that if he lays his hand on that burner, it's gonna hurt, right? Why? Because you hate him? Well, of course not. It's because you love him, right? I've shared this example with you before. When my sons were growing up, one of the things I taught them was how to use a chainsaw. And as you probably know, there's a right way and a wrong way to use a chainsaw. Right? Running that saw the wrong way can cost you your life. So if I see them using it the wrong way, in that moment, the very last thing on my mind, in fact, their feelings... Right? I couldn't care less if their feelings are hurt when I warn them with urgency and intensity about the dangers of how they're handling that saw. How they feel in that moment is the last thing on my mind. Why? Because I love them, and I want them to live. By the way, my sons don't misuse chainsaws. They're very safe and responsible young men, but you get the point, right? What kind of father would I be If I see them in imminent danger and yet I don't say anything because I'm too concerned I might hurt their feelings. What kind of savior would Jesus be if he had withheld the truth from people who were and are in imminent and eternal danger because he was too concerned about hurting their feelings with the truth? The Apostle Paul didn't say speaking the truth in love unless it hurts someone's feelings we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. No, he simply said, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, Ephesians four fifteen. Listen, whether it hurts our feelings or not, because God loves you. And it's because of his great love for his people, the church, that he issued some urgent and intense warnings to the church. As we'll see as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Revelation, where over the next two chapters, Jesus delivers to us through the Apostle John five warnings for the church. Seven churches, but five warnings. And if you were here last week or if you watched last week's message online, then you know these letters were written to seven literal churches in seven literal cities in Asia Minor. It's modern Western Turkey the most influential and strategically located churches at the time in Asia Minor and addressed in the exact order in which a messenger traveling Roman roads from Patmos, where John was, would deliver the book, right? So this, Patmos is the island that John is exiled to where he's receiving this vision and writing it down. So it wasn't just written for the church in some far-off point in the distant future. No, Revelation was written to the church then and now in every age including ours right up to the moment of Jesus' return which means these letters are addressed just as much to you and me today in the 21st century as they were to the believers then in the first century when they were written and included in these letters to the seven churches there are five warnings that are not only urgent and intense but progressively so based on the order in which they're addressed So as we read these letters in the order they were written and addressed, you're gonna notice that the warnings become increasingly urgent and increasingly intense as they go, which is not by chance, okay? These five warnings are what I call the five stages of decline for a church in disobedience to God's word. Again, you'll remember from chapter one that Revelation is first a a call to personal discipleship, which happens, according to John, when we carefully attend, in his words, To the word of god in our lives and so these next two chapters are a series of warnings for the church then and now about what happens progressively when we fail to do that to carefully attend to god's word and so the the first letter is addressed to the church at ephesus who abandoned their first love Jesus Christ and his people, which naturally progresses to the church at Pergamum, who then begin following false teaching, which leads to the church in Thyatira, who have begun living in open rebellion, which left unchecked leads to the church at Sardis, who Jesus says are spiritually dying, which ultimately leads to the church at Laodicea, who are becoming an apostate church worthless in the eyes of the Lord, who warns if they don't repent and turn from their ways that he will actually spit them out of his mouth. It is a series of five increasingly urgent and increasingly intense warnings about what happens to Christians progressively when we fail to carefully attend to God's word in our lives. And yet again, these letters, all of them, which by the way include two churches who are commended for their faithfulness and of course we're going to cover that too but all of these letters were to be delivered to and read to all of the churches which is another reason we know these are for us today as well first of all uh, throughout history from the early church fathers to today these seven letters have been considered to actually be seven royal edicts or oracles or messages more than individual letters. In fact, uh, they follow the same form as prophetic oracles that were given in the Old Testament far more than they do New Testament epistles. And so most scholars and historians consider these messages to be more like seven chapters or seven messages of the same epistle, the same letter. One, One letter with seven different proclamations. Here's the important point. To be sent to all the churches which is supported by the fact that at the end of every single one of the letters to each individual church, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The plural is significant here. In other words, at the end of the letter to Ephesus, for instance, he doesn't say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Ephesus. No, if it was just a letter to them, that's what it would say. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, all of the churches I'm addressing, because all of these letters were to be read to all of the churches, then and now. Why? Because if a church is failing to carefully attend to the word of God, no matter what stage in that process any particular church may be in at any given time, there's always a natural progression. It's the pattern we see here in Revelation. Okay, without repentance... One stage of spiritual decline always leads to the next until it's too late, according to Jesus. And so his command is for all of us to read all of these letters in a particular order, the order they were written and addressed in, so we understand the big picture, and of course repent, if need be, before it's too late. It's the whole point of these next two chapters, which will be one sermon in at least two parts. It may end up being three, we'll see. Uh, So today we're gonna cover about half, maybe a little bit more than half of chapter two, which will be part one of this message. So let's pick the story up where we left off last week at Revelation chapter two, and we'll begin by reading the first seven verses. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you've fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So he addresses this first letter, this first message to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which is a pattern that he follows throughout these letters. The Greek word for angel in that verse is angelos. It simply meant a messenger, which of course was often used in scripture to refer to a supernatural messenger from God, what we would think of when we think about angels. However, the same word was applied at times to human messengers of God's word. John the Baptist is a great example. He was called an angelos. Greek word in Matthew eleven ten. okay so <clears throat> we don't know for certain who the angels are in these letters it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, probably to address them to celestial beings unless the angels were actually reading them to the congregations which is possible but probably not likely what is more likely is that these were the human messengers who bore John's letter, those who actually read the message to the congregations which would have more likely been the church leaders such as the pastors or other elders or bishops which makes more sense because the pastors and other church leaders are considered messengers throughout scripture for God, delivering God's word to the congregation just as John the Baptist was when he preached to the masses. And then he commends the church for hating what is evil and resisting false teaching just before offering this first warning or first stage of decline for the church he says but i have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first you have to understand uh, ephesus was a magnificent city the most important in roman asia it was situated at the mouth of the caster river on the gulf of the aegean sea it uh, flourished as an important commercial and export center for asia the traveler from Rome landing in Ephesus would be introduced to the city by proceeding up a spectacular avenue 35 feet wide and lined with columns that led from the harbor to the center of the city it was part of the uh, the kingdom of Pergamum which Attalus III bequeathed to Rome in 133 BC and by the first century it had grown to more than a quarter of a million people in population. Its uh, commercial importance was heightened by the fact that there were three great trade routes that converged at Ephesus from the Euphrates by way of Colossae, from Galatia through Sardis, and from the Meander Valley to the south and east, which also meant it was a great, uh, it was great politically speaking, of political importance, tremendous uh, affluence and influence. It had a major stadium a marketplace, a theater that was built on the west slope of Mount Pion overlooking the harbor. It seated 25,000 people. It was also a free city granted by Rome, the right of self-governance, and so there were religious temples everywhere, not only built to worship Roman emperors, Claudius, Hadrian, Severus, uh, and others, but even more so the major religious attraction was of course the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world four times the size of the Parthenon. Uh, Pliny the Elder, an ancient Roman historian, gives the dimensions of the temple. It says it was 40, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and 60 feet high. He also notes that the 127 pillars, they were made of parian marble, with 36 of them overlaid with gold and jewels. I mean, Ephesus was an amazing place. Prosperous, Thriving, buzzing with activity. There was a lot uh, about Ephesus to love, to be enamored with, and to be distracted by. Yet these Ephesian Christians seemed to understand that. And so they were extra guarded against it. In fact, according to Jesus in his letter, they were doing an admirable job of resisting the temptation to integrate the pagan culture around them into the church. And of course, although the Roman imperial cult, which was really a religion, and the worship of pagan gods were ancient practices, even at that time, the Christian faith was still young. Christianity came to Ephesus probably with the quill in Priscilla in about AD 52, when Paul left them there en route from Corinth to Antioch, which is described in Acts 18, 18 through 22. the fact is you had this young church full of recent converts in a predominantly Gentile population. It meant that Christians in Ephesus were for the most part unschooled in Old Testament Jewish religious understanding, which of course would make it easy to misunderstand a lot of Christian terminology, which of course had its roots in the Jewish community, which also made it easy for false apostles, false teachers, such as the Nicolaitans, to infiltrate the church and try and lead people away from Jesus and the true gospel, just as the apostle Paul predicts in Acts twenty twenty nine and 30 in his farewell address to the Ephesian elders. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So you had a lot of new believers living in a spectacular city full of magnificent attractions and distractions, being bombarded by popular cultural influences and those who were fusing popular cultural practices with the gospel. But the thing is, these Ephesian Christians seem to understand all of that probably in part because of Paul's earlier warnings and his solid teaching at the Ephesian church for over two years back in Acts 20. So the problem wasn't so much that they were giving in to false teaching, they weren't. Jesus said, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. Okay, they're doing a great job of avoiding the traps being laid by the false teachers. The problem for the Ephesian church was that in the process of resisting the culture around them, they had insulated themselves to the point they forgot why they were put there to begin with. Namely, to make disciples and reach the lost. And so Jesus issues the first warning to the church. He says you're abandoning your first love, which is to say their love for God and their love for each other. Jesus said, remember therefore from where you have fallen, Don't forget where you've come from. Repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, have you forgotten that you were once sinners too, saved by grace? Don't forget from where you've fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. What works? Making disciples and reaching the lost. See, we tend to... Teach this passage of scripture as a warning against falling in love with the world, the culture around us, to the point that we've lost our first love in Jesus. That we love the things of the world more than we love Jesus. But that's not what this passage is talking about at all. Now, the Ephesian Christians despised the secular culture around them. I know your works, Jesus says, your toil and your patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil. He goes on to say, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. They detested the false teachers and the heresy those false teachers were trying to peddle in the church. See, the problem for the Ephesian Christians wasn't that they loved the secular culture around them more than they loved Jesus. No, the problem was they loved their own religious culture more than they loved Jesus. Bible scholar Robert Hayden Mounts once said, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. Think about that. That was certainly true for the Ephesian church as the desire for sound teaching and the resulting actions they were taking to exclude all of the imposters. In the process, they'd created a climate of suspicion and exclusivity within the church to the point they were more in love with their Christian culture than they were with Christ and other Christians. They were creating an environment where love within the believing community could no longer exist. And unfortunately, the history of the Christian church is rife with instances of churches being incredibly unloving toward others for the sake of their own pursuit of truth. Listen, good works and pure doctrine are not substitutes for loving other people, lost people, and found people. Love and truth are not mutually exclusive. In fact, they're supposed to go hand in hand. But that was lost on the Ephesian church who had forsaken their first love when they stopped loving other people just as many churches have today. As John says in his first epistle, if anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. 1 John 4.20 Okay, You can love everything about the church but if you don't love the church itself How can you say you love God? You can love your calling all day long. But if you don't love the people you're called to. How can you say you love God? I mean, just go around the room and take a poll of all the people with stories about how they've been hurt. Some of them devastated by the church. Hopefully not this church. But some church at some point in their journey. I hear the stories over and over and over and over again people who were devastated because the church was more concerned with correcting people than it was with loving people. By the way, I'm not suggesting we don't call out people's sins and bring correction and direction as a matter. Of course, we do that all the time here, but there's a reason. The apostle Peter said, above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins first Peter 4 8 because love is supposed to drive every other single thing that we do including sharing the truth and so look if you love going to church more than you love the church you've abandoned your first love if you love Christian things more than you love Christians you've abandoned your first love If you're more concerned with your own comfort than you are with reaching the lost, then you've abandoned your first love. If you'd rather protect what you have than provide for someone else, you've abandoned your first love. If the state of your own personal image is more important to you than the state of someone else's soul, I'm telling you, you've abandoned your first love. If there's anything in your life, even seemingly good things like Christian church culture that you love more than Jesus Christ and other people, Well, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. In other words, get back to your first love, Jesus Christ and the people he's called you to. If not, Jesus says, if you keep focusing on the Christianized bubble that you're living in at the expense of lost and dying people, and for that matter, your brothers and sisters in Christ all around you who you're called to serve, then Jesus says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand was a representation of the church itself as Jesus already said in chapter one, verse 20. We saw it last week. In other words, if you don't get back to loving me and the people I've called you to more than everything else in your life, then your church will cease to exist because I will personally remove it from the landscape. It's a harsh warning spoken out of a deep love for us, his church. A.W. Tozer once said the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. Let's keep reading, verses eight through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death." For three centuries, Smyrna had been one of the most important cities in Asia Minor. Along with Pergamum, Smyrna vied with Ephesus for preeminence, though Ephesus remained the most powerful city in the province. And like Ephesus, Smyrna was an important center of the imperial cult in Asia. It was a beautiful and prosperous city with paved streets. It had a library, a gymnasium, a shrine to Homer, who many believe uh, was actually born there, which makes it curious that the Christians living there in such an affluent, um, abundant place were so poor, as mentioned in verse 9, until you keep reading where you discover that the church was suffering economic hardship because of the religious Jews who were slandering the Christian church, and beyond that, even collaborating with local officials to repress the Christian minority there. Uh, Until the latter part of the first century, Christianity actually enjoyed a degree of protection under the umbrella of Judaism, which was tolerated by Rome. The Jews were not forced to worship Caesar as a god, but allowed to offer sacrifices in honor of uh, the emperors as rulers, but not as gods, at least to begin with. And so the Jewish community in Smyrna was not only substantial, but they were more or less on positive terms with the Roman government. That is until Nero began specifically targeting Christians for persecution. And then the Jews were all too willing to make the Roman authorities aware that the Christians were actually not a Jewish sect. And since the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of a city and often even village life in Asia Minor, the only way you could aspire to any kind of economic prosperity and greater social standing was by participating, at least to some degree, in the Roman cult. And so citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions. City officials were so dedicated to the cult that they even distributed money to citizens from public funds to pay for sacrifices to the emperor. It was basically impossible to share in the city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. And so there was a tremendous pressure on the Christians to conform. And that pressure was only increasing during Domitian's reign when this was written. And uh, there were Jewish informers, what the Romans called delatores, who the Roman officials depended on to be accusers before they would, uh, could prosecute a case. And where these accusations often uh, became excuses for them to completely destroy people's lives based on flimsy evidence often, as long as the Roman officials would permit it. So. Those christians who refused to participate in the imperial cult were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic and would be accused and arrested and punished according to roman law which often included exile as was the case with john Uh, certainly imprisonment which they describe here in this part of the letter Uh, many of them were about to be locked up and of course even capital punishment as was the case with some of the christians in smyrna as we see here of course It also demonstrated that these Jews were not only false Jews, but also a synagogue of Satan and that the church, by implication, was the true Israel in this case. So it's worth noting also that the fact um, is this is only one of two churches, the other being Philadelphia, which we'll see next week or the week after, uh, with no weaknesses that he commends without warning, according to these letters, which is telling because these two churches were also the least significant of the seven churches in terms of numbers and influence, which would suggest, I think, that uh, it's at least worth looking at the fact that our current preoccupation in the modern church with numbers and influence needs to be reexamined because clearly it's more important to be faithful than it is to be powerful, right? And to be commended by the Lord, than to be commended by the culture around us, even if that means being faithful unto death. As we talked about last week, the church has never been exempt from tribulation. The church has never been exempt from tribulation throughout history. Why do we think we will be in America? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's keep reading verses 12 through 17 and we'll stop there today. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war with them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. The road north from Smyrna follows the coastline some 40 miles, and then it turns inland uh, in a northeasterly direction up the valley of the Caicos River, and there about 10 miles in from the Aegean Sea stood the impressive capital city of Pergamum. It was a famous city that had long prospered, had about 200,000 inhabitants, Pergamum hosted temples dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma and to Asclepius, the god of healing symbolized by serpents and even larger, a larger altar dedicated to Zeus. It was huge actually at the top of Pergamum's Acropolis which hailed Zeus as their savior. And of course, emperor worship was also strongly emphasized even required in the province of Asia as we've already talked about which again was a major problem for the Christians at the time and so all of this qualifies Pergamum to be called the site of Satan's throne and the church there is commended for standing strong in the face of persecution even unto death as was the case with the believer named Antipas. However there were some in the church who were beginning to follow the false teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, teachings that included eating food sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality, among other things. And so Jesus issues his second warning to the churches, this time for following false teaching, which also happens to be the second stage of decline for the church who does not carefully attend to God's word. This is, uh, this is the irony of the church at Ephesus, by the way. The very thing the church at Ephesus was trying so hard to avoid, false teaching, is the very thing you will eventually succumb to when you've abandoned your first love because you cannot stay connected to the truth of God's word when you've lost your connection to God himself. And so all that the church at Ephesus needs to do if they want to find out what's next for them apart from repentance and turning back to God, all they have to do is look right down the road to the church at Pergamum who were beginning to follow false teaching. Okay, without repentance, that's exactly where Ephesus was headed and it's exactly where we are headed if we don't return to our first love. It's the natural progression for the church when we fail to carefully attend to God's word. We abandon our first love and open ourselves up to false teaching, which is already happening to much of the modern church today. 2 Timothy 3, 16, Paul says that all scripture is breathed out by God. That is to say that the scriptures hold the same authority as if God were to come down and speak to you directly. He's saying that all of the scriptures are the true words of God given to men, not simply the words of men, written about God, which is a profound difference because all other religious writings are exactly that, the words of men written about God. And so why do we willingly follow something so fallible, so flawed, so subjective, when we have the infallible, inerrant, objective scriptures breathed out by God himself? It's because we've abandoned our first love. Jesus Christ and his people. You see, every, every stage of decline, every warning for these churches, they all come back to the first because you cannot stay connected to God's word when you've lost your connection to God himself and so we entertain other teachings other versions of the gospel, ones that don't demand anything from us or provide anything for us other than to satisfy our personal preferences, which is why these warnings from Jesus are so hard. The fact is, Jesus always said what we need to hear, not always what we want to hear. And I'm telling you, if there was ever a battleground for the soul of biblical preaching today, this is it. The battle between preaching what people want to hear And what they need to hear. And listen, uh, it's not a cultural battle. It isn't a generational battle. It, in fact, isn't a human battle at all. It is a spiritual battle. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy all the way back in the first century that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is exactly what was happening in Pergamum and it's happening today right now in much of the modern church. We say we believe everything Jesus said. But I wonder sometimes if we compiled a list of some of the more difficult sayings of Jesus and put those in modern vernacular and then read those statements to professing believers without telling them they came from Jesus or the Bible. I wonder how many of those statements Christians would actually disagree with. I think we'd be surprised at just how common that would be it is shocking actually how many christians reject what the god-breathed scriptures say i'm not talking about a believer who's struggling with some particular sin and knows they need to correct that but they're in the middle of a battle or a struggle we all struggle with sin at times in our lives i'm talking about The sheer number of Christians who, first of all, don't know what the word of God says to the contrary of how they're living or what they believe about certain aspects of life on this planet, things like marriage or relationships in general, how to treat other people or the sanctity of human life or or things like ethics or morals or daily living for that matter. And yet when you show them what the scriptures actually say, Instead of changing their lives to conform to the word of God, they try to change the word of God to conform to their lives. How they're living. It's exactly what was happening in Pergamum. The teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans were coming from religious people. People in the church who claimed to be Christians but were manipulating the word of God to justify living in ways that were clearly contrary to the word of God. Why? So they could pursue their own passions, their own preferences. They could continue living the way they wanted to and justify it by changing God's word. Look, you can get away with living like that for a period of time until it wrecks your marriage or ruins other relationships Or lead you into idolatry as we see in Pergamum or addiction or bitterness or unforgiveness or disillusionment or a lack of faith or simply a hardening of your heart toward Christ and his word until you turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Away from your first love. It happens all the time in the routine course of people's lives, the gradual wandering off of hearts and minds away from Christ and his word. What it actually says, because we're more in love with Christian church culture than we are with Christ and his church. And of course, we know that Jesus never promised us an easy life, quite the opposite. But I think if we're being honest, the vast majority of our problems in this life are self-inflicted. The plain and yet powerful truth is if we would simply heed his word in every area of our lives because we believed it to be true, then I think most of what most of us struggle with would be resolved. Think about whatever it is you're struggling with today. If you actually put God and other people before yourself, how much of that struggle would go away? If you started chasing after him more than you chase after things like money and material things, how many of your issues would go away? If you stop worrying about your circumstances just as Jesus said you could because he promised to take care of you, how much better would your life be? And what if you rejoiced and considered yourself blessed every time someone insulted you or offended you or tried to hurt you when all you're trying to do is live your life for Jesus? How many of your problems would turn into blessings? Listen, all that... That's all just stuff we deal with in the routine course of life with its inherent difficulties and struggles that we so often manufacture in our own lives. What happens when real persecution comes from the outside? What happens when the world outside of the church turns wholesale against the church? What happens when following Christ becomes unacceptable or illegal or even life-threatening? because Jesus promised us it would. And in fact, it already has for Christians all over the world. What about when it happens here? We have some missionaries that are going to come in a few weeks and talk to you about things that have happened to them just a few years ago in China. You won't believe it. Are you going to believe what he's actually said in his word when the time comes here? Will you attend to it carefully? Are you going to believe someone else's thoughts and opinions about God and his word because it's more in line with their heart than his and maybe it makes life a little bit easier? Listen, the answer to those questions, the answer as to what you're going to do when persecution comes to your doorstep in the future, if that day arrives... The answer is wholly dependent upon your relationship with Jesus Christ and his church today. Therefore, repent. If you've abandoned your first love and become disconnected with God's word because you're disconnected with God himself, then he says, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Would you rather have This world come against you, or God come against you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, that's nourishment, directly from God himself, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In ancient courtrooms, jurors voted for acquittal with a white stone and for conviction with the black one. Jesus was saying, if you'll stand firm in the faith, stay connected to me and my word, and attend to it carefully. I will nourish you with everything you need in the day of tribulation, and I will give you a white stone. It's a stone I've already paid for, acquittal for your sin, and the promise of eternal life with me. J.C. Ryle once said, the saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. Don't miss the moment. Don't dismiss the warning. Don't abandon your first love. If need be, come back to Jesus while you still can. He's waiting for you. Let's pray.